Welcome to this special podcast from the team at Essential Ethics, in which we discuss pandemic ethics in a children's hospital. I'm your host, John Massey. The worldwide COVID-19 pandemic is putting pressure on healthcare systems that has never been seen before and barely imagined. In Australia, we've been fortunate in some ways to have a little lead time to prepare. But, like everyone, we're scrambling to put together the best response we can. Clinical ethics has an important role to play to set the foundations of how we should respond. Working in the context of COVID-19 means that it becomes especially important to make sure that decisions are founded on accepted ethical principles and can be clearly explained and justified in these terms. Good pandemic planning requires reflection on values because scientific information alone cannot aid decision-making. We're not the only clinical ethics group doing this, but there are important moral differences for children's healthcare services that the Children's Bioethics Centre is turning its hand to, and it's all hands on deck here at RCH. What we want to do in this podcast is share with you the ethical principles that underlie the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne response to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm joined by Professor Lynn Gillam, Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre and Professor of Bioethics at the University of Melbourne Population School of Medicine. Welcome, Lynn. Thanks, John. I'm also joined by Professor Claire Delaney, Senior Clinical Ethicist at the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital and also at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Claire. Hello, John. What I'd like to do is just start with some ethical questions and then turn to Lynn initially, perhaps to set the ethical context, and then to each of you to try and answer some of the broad questions. So I think one of our initial questions is resolving the dilemma of optimising patient care but protecting staff in the pandemic. And we want to reflect on how the hospital respects the individual's rights and autonomy of their staff with the needs of the hospital to provide care to patients. What we also want to do is balance the needs of the individual patient with the needs of the community and reflect on how the hospital utilises its resources, including its human capital, to best effect. There is a broader question in all this as well that runs through those first four questions, and that is, how do we see the Royal Children's Hospital or children's hospitals in general in their communities? Are they just a resource for children or are they part of a community resource? Lynn, I might turn to you first in, to make some initial reflections about the general ethical context of children's hospitals in the pandemic. Yeah, sure, John. Um, to me, one of the most important things to keep in mind uh, from the beginning is that the ethical principles that underpin our decision-making in a pandemic context are, in fact, the same ethical principles that underpin uh, clinical ethical decision-making in general. So the principles haven't changed. Those basic ethical principles of 
beneficence and non-maleficence, doing good, not producing uh, harm of any sort, respecting individual autonomy, um, and then the, the important principle of justice or fairness, they should still guide our decision-making. What has changed, though, uh, is the situation brings some of those principles more to the fore than we're used to thinking about. Uh, so these principles always need to be um, balanced off against each other uh, and need to be applied to particular situations. So in the context of this pandemic, um, there are some aspects of some principles, particularly the principle of justice, that we need to think about more. So I guess that represents a shift really um, in the way that we're used to thinking about the ethical responsibilities of health staff. So we're used to thinking in terms of the obligation of health professionals to focus on the care of individual patients, uh, to make treatment decisions that are aligned with the preferences and values of those patients, um, and to um, produce benefit, maximal benefit for individual patients. But a pandemic moves that into the background somewhat and the um, focus of particularly beneficence and non-maleficence then becomes more group or community-based. So, Glass Lynn, what you're sharing with us is that we don't need to invent a, a new ethic for the times, that the, the principles are there and it's uh, how we uh, weight them or I think Ran and Gillen would would say it's a sort of matter of degree, I guess, with those principles. Yes, absolutely, John. And I think that's important to, to bear in mind. We're not inventing a whole new set of principles and we're not going into uncharted waters with nothing to hang on to. Lynn, one of the things that sits here is that you know, children's hospitals you know, pride themselves, as, as we do, on providing gold-plated best care at every situation from the whole health experience to obviously the, the care and then the support of, of the families. Do you think that when we're considering the principles of beneficence that that, that needs to change though? So remember beneficence still matters but uh, we, what we now have to face uh, quite squarely is that there will be limited resources we don't yet know exactly how limited, um, but we have to accept that it might be um, ethically necessary to uh, step down the level of care that we're able to offer to some patients away from usual best practice care uh, in order to produce the best care across the community that we can. I think that's going to be uh, hard for clinicians to do that, although I think in the background that's what clinicians will accept and acknowledge, but one-on-one, uh, -on -one, that's going to be a challenge. We're going to come back to that because we're starting then to, to hint at, at, at resource allocation, but what I'd like to do, though, is turn to Claire Delaney because you know, one of the things that's in the forefront of our minds is protection of staff. We should come to work and be safe. We're told that time and time again, and the pandemic is changing that potentially. So Claire, would you like to make some comment about the ethical principles underlying protection of staff in the pandemic? Sure. I think uh, picking up on Lynn's point that in the ordinary course of work, 
uh, health professionals who are uh, acting in the best interests of their patient and providing the best care that they can don't generally think about their own safety uh, other than normal occupational health and safety of their workplace. So what a pandemic such as this is doing, um, which um, affects all of us, um, means that suddenly one's own health and safety becomes front and centre and it becomes even more important be being in a health institution where people are sick with this and will come in with this pandemic. So the um, ethical challenge is uh, continuing optimal patient care or as optimal as possible at the same time as providing um, health care staff with optimal protection from risk of uh, infection and also risk of psychological harm. And so those two things are going to be in tension with each other. And um, where clinical ethics comes in is helping people think about how to strike that balance uh, between those two um, goals. And there are two ethical reasons to protect staff wellbeing in a pandemic that might not be immediately obvious. The first one, uh, is, is probably obvious in that staff require protection because they're human beings like everybody else whose well-being matters. And um, like everybody else, they also have differing reactions and concerns and levels of anxiety uh, concerning their own uh, health and welfare. And this anxiety or concern will depend on their work situation uh, but it'll also be informed by their personal circumstances. So, so staff are health staff in a sort of group way, but they're also really individual people bringing things in. And so that's one really important reason um, to think about their welfare. Now, the second one is, is an instrumental one, that health staff are absolutely crucial to provide patient care. And patients will suffer harm if staff, or more harm if staff are unavailable, or if they're physically or mentally unable to do their jobs. And this second reason goes to the fact that there's a, an ethically special situation about healthcare professionals as a group um, in society. So even in non-pandemic times, in ordinary times, health professionals have a special obligation to act in the interests of another person. And that's beyond... Um, that which applies to people who do other sorts of jobs. Health staff have to do, it's part of their role to act for another person and to meet their needs. And this is even in situations where they disagree with a patient or they think that the patient or the family is making a suboptimal decision uh, or even if the patient or family is ungrateful to them, they still have this obligation to provide the best care possible. So in, in uh, COVID-19 times, this patient-centred orientation is, is amplified in a way and also changed a little bit. So the obligation to accept some level of inconvenience or burden or risk to do the job of patient care is greater and the obligation to provide care for another person changes a bit which is what Lynn was talking about. It extends beyond the individual child and family 
to think about maximising the benefits of children, families, people in the wider community. Claire, there's there's so much uh, in that, and I think um, the obligations have gone up on both sides of the equation, um, mm. and the seesaw, you know, with duty of care and obligation to treat sick people uh, have both gone up in some That's ways right. together That's right. because yeah. of the urgency. Yeah. Um, and and then there's a tension between the healthcare worker as an individual and the organisation, which has uh, an organisational fiduciary duty to care for the patients. Yeah. Um, and that's probably fairly unidimensional. It's to care for the patients. Um, whereas the healthcare worker has that fiduciary duty too to the individual, but also a duty to themselves not to catch the virus. And also many will be worried about taking the virus home. And, uh, you know, there may be elderly parents, children, the healthcare worker might be unwell themselves on immunosuppressive medication for some condition that they're still able to work, but it's not ideal. Yeah, I think the the ethical uh, term that's sometimes used in this situation is reciprocity, the idea that actually the um, because health professionals have this higher duty to, to some extent, put themselves at risk in caring for others, then there is recognition that um, uh, because they shoulder this disproportionate burden in protecting the public, that the steps should be taken by the institution, their employers and other um, agencies to protect health staff as well. So that's that's absolutely, um, you know, underpinning the need to protect staff while they're protecting others. That uh, that that presents a problem, doesn't it? Uh, you know, in in some ways, as do in the COVID situation at the moment, we don't exactly know how to do that for everyone optimally, or we have an idea and provision of uh, resources uh, to do that. Yeah, some of the guiding principles. Um, are that uh, to make situation specific rather than blanket decisions of protecting staff because, as I said before, that staff are doing different roles and they're bringing in different um, circumstances. So always in balancing um, protection of patients and protection of staff, you do need to make it very situation specific um, and to ensure that whatever methods you use um, have minimal, the most, are least restrictive on staff and have the most um, or the least impact on the health and wellbeing of patients. So they're the the guiding principles, but um, putting them into practice um, is is challenging. And, And the other important aspect of putting them into practice is making sure that that stakeholders who are affected have have a say, and ideally that these principles are um, talked about and planned um, not in an ad hoc way, but but in a systematic way. That's particularly where ethics can be helpful to go through those 
um, pros and cons of, of any restrictions. I think that's you know, partly why we're here today, isn't it? It's the, uh, to share with uh, our hospitals teams, but hopefully the useful principles for everyone else in the children's hospital situation, uh, what we're trying to do. We've prepared a briefing paper for the hospital to guide principles of handling uh, the pandemic. And, uh, and in, in, that's part of transparency. So I think processes uh, based on sound ethical principles to inclusive of the important stakeholders and transparency with that information are very important. Claire, I just want to pick up on a, a statement that is in the, the briefing paper that I think is very important, which is to make sure that the increased risk to staff is the minimum possible to produce the intended outcomes. Um, well, that's rather self-explanatory. Do you, have you got something to augment that, discuss a little further? Yeah, um, I think um, taking that into, into concrete examples means um, considering in particular situations what sort of and what forms of protection health staff should be provided with and what they need and making sure that um, you can minimise the number of staff who are exposed to, to risks um, or identify, you need to identify the risks first and be very clear what they are and their magnitude and, and how they will affect people, how they will affect staff as well as um, what is the risk of minimising staff on patients if you, if you change the way staff deliver care. Um, thinking about whether staff who are not required to be in the hospital um, for frontline care should be there. I think that sort of thing's already been done. But identifying what protective equipment is required, identifying staff who might be at increased risk um, if they're exposed, working out whether some staff could be permitted to step back from frontline patient care, um, or identifying which staff form particularly critical roles uh, for patient care and making sure that the staff mix is is the um, the best it can be while uh, to protect staff and and deliver the best available care so it's asking those sort of questions about each situation so getting out the facts of what are the risks that staff are facing and what ways can um, those risks be managed in really concrete ways and Claire if a staff member feels perhaps that they're more at risk for some reason personally or have more at stake at home. Should mm. that just be left to the autonomous decision of the staff, which would normally happen because their position can be replaced? Mm. Or will we have to accept a more coercive position from the organisation that needs to have uh, people at the coalface? Yeah, I think I'd use more supportive position rather than coercive maybe. The idea that um, actually this is very likely to be the case, that as I said, one of the, the first reason ethically that um, uh, to, 
that staff welfare matters is because they're people and uh, they'll have different different um, psychological, emotional, physical, personal circumstances that will um, impact on how they're coping. So, and that, that's where it really is um, a challenge for employers and, and, and health leaders looking after staff is, is to really try to find a way to support that individuality of staff whilst also recognising that there is this higher duty that they have to, to care for patients. So I don't have the answer, but I think it's something that people who are considering this have to take seriously. And what about the issue of staff protection, PPE, personal protective equipment, that, that worldwide uh, is an issue? So we've started at least briefly to consider that maybe good enough is okay in these times for, for patient care and for beneficence, if you like. So if we're really short, is good enough or as near as we can get with personal protective equipment, a principle that or a situation that would still hold with non-maleficence and not harming staff? I'm going to... I'm gonna, um send a, a hospital hand pass to Lynn on that one because I noticed she had her hand up before. So she may not be answering that question. We can come back to it. Well, Claire, I think that's probably a good opportunity to uh, to, to switch. So Claire, we'll tap you out. We'll mm-hmm. invite Lynn in uh, and see if Lynn's prepared to tackle that question about is near enough good enough for staff uh, protection and then that sort of lead us into what Lynn was going to share with us about allocation of resources. Lynn. Uh, thanks, John, and thanks for the easy question first up. Uh, so if we're taking the view that uh, in relation to patient care, it might be necessary to do less than optimal care for some patients in order to make best use of the healthcare resources that we've got to benefit patients overall. I do think we have to apply the same principle to protecting staff. Um, if we don't have enough resources to provide optimal protection for staff, uh, then we clearly need to accept and think about some uh, less than optimal level of protection and ask ourselves how much is good enough and is there a point below which it's not good enough and staff shouldn't be expected to put themselves at that level of risk. But it, clearly we have to accept less than optimal protection for staff, just as we have to accept less than optimal care for patients. All right. I think you've answered that very neatly because it really keeps the balance there, doesn't it, on, on both sides of the equation. And, and today's podcast and really the pandemic response is about balancing those needs of maintaining care for the patients and safety of staff. Lynn, would you like to just to make some reflections about the ethical principles that, that underline allocation of resources? And obviously, lots of people will go straight to specific pieces of equipment, but it's really a broader question about, in general, equipment, but also staff as, as resources and how they mm-hmm. might be or could be used optimally mm-hmm. 
in the children's hospital? Sure. So remembering that this is all coming under the ethical principle of justice, which talks about distributive justice and the fair allocation of scarce resources. So this is an area that ethicists have thought about a lot in the past, not just in relation to previous pandemics, but in general as uh, uh, I guess a theoretical understanding of what that principle of justice means. So a really standard way to think about the uh, distributive justice is that there are a number of what are called material principles of justice, which is set out the criteria that would count as ethical or fair to use in making allocation decisions. So justice is, in this sense, is complicated. There's not just one criterion. Uh, well, again, we have to balance between different criteria, but the key ones are allocating resources in a way that um, meets the, the largest need. So very uh, plainly speaking, allocate resources to the, to the people who are the most sick, most in danger of dying. Um, another principle is to allocate, or sorry, another criterion uh, is to allocate uh, resources so that they produce the most benefit possible. Now, frequently those go together. If someone is really sick and you're able to allocate resources to them and save their life, you've allocated to the sickest and also the one who's most able to benefit. Occasionally, however, they will come apart and you might have uh, people who are really sick, but they're so sick that uh, even with um, maximal allocation of resources to that person, you're not actually be going, to, going to be able to save their lives or you may not be able to get them to recover to any um, major extent. So we need to keep both of those in mind. Um, another important principle is to um, allocate resources in ways that are non-discriminatory. And that means uh, not taking into account features of people that are not morally relevant and not relevant factually to the situation. So we shouldn't discriminate on the basis of gender or religion uh, or political view. Uh, those sorts of things. We're really familiar with that, uh, but it's important to, to, I think, remind ourselves at this point that we should be focusing on things that are ethically relevant. Lynn, in a children's hospital, we might be you know, valuing children because they've got a long time to live. Are we uh, thinking yes. of... So, sorry, you know, it's about yes. saving lives or, or length of life. What, 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 which, which are we after? Mm. So, again, this is an issue about the interpretation of the principle of justice that's been debated for a long time. Um, in the context of a pandemic, uh, again, we should start with what we've got and think about these two things. You can save lives, but you can also think about how long will be, uh, do we expect the life that we've saved to be. In general terms, if you save the life of a child, a child's going to live many more years than if you save the life of an older adult. And so if you had to choose between those two, uh, that would give you a reason to choose the younger person. Now, to me, that works quite well at the extremes. And I think there's strong ethical justification, say, for example, to uh, choose, if you have to choose, uh, saving the life of the 10-year-old who might have another 70 years to live rather than saving the life of an 80-year-old who might have another five years to live. So that works quite well at the extremes. Once we come in from that and we're thinking 
well, should we save the life of a 30-year-old or a 50-year-old? To me, that distinction then starts to fall away because the difference is less clear. There's an awful lot of unpredictability about people's futures anyway. So, so as a general principle, prioritising the young has been a way of thinking about allocation of scarce resources, particularly in a pandemic situation. I think a challenge for us in this COVID-19 situation is that children seem to be least affected. So they're not in need of prioritising in the same way. So we have to be really careful not to just jump to the default position of um, prioritise children if children actually aren't in need, as much need of those resources. I mean, Lynn, there may be another tension between the child with a long time to live and the instrumental value of the healthcare worker. Uh, yes, that's another thing. So... Um, as some writers are now pointing out, some ethicists are pointing out in the literature that's starting to come out around this, uh, that um, the emphasis on prioritising essential services staff, including healthcare workers, uh, does in fact leave children out because children are not essential in that instrumental sense. On the other hand, we can see children as being essential in a more, I guess, symbolic or forward-looking sense that you can say that the, the future of our community, of our civilization, is in the hands of children. If we lost children, that would be a really big loss. And so, again, it's balancing. We've got those different balls in the air. We're trying to weigh them up. Um, and it all points to not making decisions without thinking them through and being careful to enunciate the basis on which to make a decision. So we, and there are, this is value, values pluralism, John. We have more than one value and we can't just put them all aside to make a simple decision. We've got to make the complex decision, which takes into account all of those values that we hold. I think, you know, values pluralism, pluralism is, is a very important uh, concept. And uh, Claire, do you have something to, to add to that? Oh, well, I was only going to pick up on that values pluralism um, as meaning that it's it's actually important in those situations to look closely at the facts and circumstances of the situation because uh, there are so many values and preferences that could be uh, and decisions based on those values that could be made, um, then you need to be very clear about what's informing those values and the, the, the situation itself. So that process suggests that, you know, we have to be careful about not being too quick. So we're going to have to work fast, sure, but not too quick because these are big judgments that are essentially going to be made and we need some depth and, and ethics will have some way of contributing to that, hopefully. So one important example of that uh, for us, John, in thinking about risk to staff is and allocation of resources is to remember we've got patients affected by COVID-19, and we then got all of the other patients that we usually have in our hospital. Um, and we need to remember both groups. Uh, so resource allocation is not just about choosing between patients with COVID-19. Uh, in fact, all patients need to be considered there. Uh, so that's one way in which we need to think carefully and not um, a leap too quickly to a conclusion. It's also the case in relation to um, risk to staff that some patients will pose more risk to staff than others and we can't uh, think about every encounter between a staff member and a patient as being equally risky. 
because they're not. We need to start, um, I, I guess, thinking in a more nuanced way. Lynn, what I'd also just like to think about because, you know, when we're thinking about resources, we've talked about maximising uh, benefits, we've talked about instrumental value, um, we've considered perhaps priority for worst off as a, as, as a way of putting into the decision matrix. But when we're considering treating people equally and you talked about not using differences that are not of you know, moral consequence, mm. but... You know, there could be a rush of patients um, and, you know, there's option of first come, first served. Now the inn is full. We can't treat the next mm. person that comes uh, or a random selection model. Do you want to make any comment about those methods of... Yeah, thanks, John. Um, so first come, first served is the idea that we should essentially allocate our resources to whoever walks in the door. Uh, so we give them what we can, then the next person walks in, we give them what we can. And the end result of that is you, obviously there will be diminishing resources. So the last person who walks in the door is going to get less than the first person who walked in the door. Now, maybe in some contexts that's a reasonable way to allocate a health care, but it's got significant problems. Um, it systematically means that those who are well-resourced uh, both financially and socially and able to present for care early, uh, uh, get priority just by accident. Um, it potentially means that those are geographically further away are also disadvantaged. Uh, and it really works, is likely to work against those other quite compelling principles uh, around um, allocating resources to those who are the most in need, who are the sickest, um, and preferably also those who are sickest and well-placed to recover so most able to benefit. So first come, first served um, has in fact been ruled out by a number of the organisations and ethicists writing about COVID-19 ethics. Now, random allocation is a bit different uh, because first come, first served is not random, but you could deliberately randomise in various ways. A lot of people find this an objectionable idea because it just leaves everything up to chance. Um, personally, I think that there is potentially some room for that when everything else is equal. So if you had a situation where if it came down to this, there was one ventilator or one ICU bed and there were three patients in equal need with equal capacity to benefit, uh, then that might be reasonable to essentially draw straws rather than to look at one and say, well, you're more worth to the society than another or you deserve it more or trying to make really fine-grained judgments about how likely they are to recover when we don't in fact have good evidence for that. That might be a contained situation in which random allocation would actually be the most ethical thing to do. Let's hope that uh, this remains a discussion at a sort of theoretical principle level because it sounds pretty terrible place uh, to be. Uh, what I'd just like to do next, because we haven't got a lot of time left, is just to turn back to Claire, perhaps with some more thoughts about how clinical ethics might help us with some of the practical issues that we're going to need to solve. Yeah, I think um, clinical ethics can work in two broad spaces. Um, the first, well, the first one 
could be at it should be I think at the level of um, decision making guides um, and planning uh, and doing uh, based upon what we've been doing in the last half an hour, which is identifying what are some of the ethical hotspots and challenges that are going to arise for health professionals and for patients in 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 uh, hospitals. So um, in the planning process, that means um, we can use these types of broad and well-established ethical principles to underpin quite specific actions and um, guidelines for practice that are developed in response to the changing situation. So we can be there providing an overview, giving advice, um, highlighting aspects of those guidelines that have been, you know, left out or, or, or whatever. So, so that's that policy or guideline level. The second broad way we can help out is the more usual way we do probably, uh, it, which is two clinicians on, in, in, at the coalface. <laughs> Uh, and so be there as a uh, a support for the decisions that they will inev inevitably have to make when resources get a bit lower, there's less capacity available in staff, or there's conflict between what staff are prepared to do, or there's concern about the adequacy of care for patients in diminishing resources. So there, people, there'll be moral distress right there and um, identifying what is ethically important and helping people to see what possible actions they have available to them and giving them some support for their decision making and some language to use to make decisions uh, are, the, are um, ways that ethics can help out. Lynn, would you like to uh, add something to that? Thanks, John. I'm thinking that moral distress is really important. Moral distress is a feeling that you're doing the wrong thing. You're being made to do the wrong thing by circumstances beyond your control. And I think that uh, I agree with Claire that it's quite likely that a lot of people will be feeling that um, as they're delivering um, care that's below the usual um, really high standard that they're able to deliver. One of the things that an ethical understanding can help do is, um, I guess, give a way of managing that sense of moral distress. So we know that we're working with conflicting ethical principles, they're in tension with each other. We know we have to make uh, compromises between principles. The idea of moral regret is really important here. Uh, this is the idea that if you have to compromise one of your principles in order to fulfil another, you have in fact lost something. You've done the right thing. It was right to do what you decided to do. It was right to reduce the level of patient care a bit for this patient in order to be able to offer good care to other patients. But there's still a loss and it's still appropriate to feel regret for that. But that feeling of regret doesn't mean that you've done the wrong thing. It's the right decision, even though it feels bad. But it's okay to feel bad. In fact, um, if you're a person who cares about doing the right thing, it's obvious that you would feel bad, but you needn't be paralysed by that feeling. I think that's a, a very good point, Lynn, to bring us towards the end of this podcast because 
I think that uh, everybody on the front line is going to be in that uh, situation. And I guess you're giving us permission to feel bad, uh, but also you know not not to dwell on uh, not to dwell on uh, that. It's been an extraordinary podcast, and we've covered quite a breadth of ethical discussion. And I'm sure that we should get together again soon to flesh this out a little bit more and perhaps think in more depth about how caring for children is morally different in these times uh, than for adults. We've considered today uh, values that underpin the principles like duty to provide care, equity and individual liberty. Uh, Reciprocity has has come up, Um, stewardship of of resources and uh, trust between the patients uh, and the staff uh, the patients and institutions and the staff in the institutions and that's going to challenge us in uh, month, the months ahead. So I'd like to thank uh, Lynn and Claire for joining us uh, for this special podcast at Essential Ethics. Claire, thank you. Thank you. And Lynn. Thanks, John. And for everyone listening, our RCH Uh, briefing paper is available on the website of the Children's Bioethics Centre and you can find us at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. We'd love your feedback on the podcast and our briefing document. This podcast was recorded and produced by the Creative Studios at Royal Children's Hospital And a special thank you for some of the background material from uh, Dr. Merle Spriggs. Please, everybody, stay safe. And remember, essential ethics, be inspired.